0: And he said, Try me. And I said, Stevenage. He said, Stevenage? I was in Baldock. And I was oh. like,
1: <laughs> Welcome to Surviving Society's collaborative series with the Centre on the Dynamics of Ethnicity, based at the University of Manchester, also known as CODE. In these episodes, we explore the facts and evidence produced through the Centre's leading research. We ask how changing patterns of inequalities relate into the ways in which ethnic identities are perceived, acted upon and experienced in Britain. Across the series, we focus on policy and debates around ethnic diversity, integration, immigration and inequality. Hello listeners, my name is Dr Chantel Jessica Lewis and I'm really excited today to be joined in the studio with Gary Young, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester and who also just won the Orwell Prize for Journalism. Oh my god, bashment horns please George. <laughs> Gary it is so amazing to have you in the studio there's so many things that I could have listed out in terms of all the things you've achieved and the contributions you've made particularly to politics to journalism but to Black Britain Um, it's such an honour to be in the studio with you I really feel like you're one of the key people that have inspired me personally both as a sociologist and someone that dabbles in politics to kind of be confident in tre- speaking truth to power um, and today we're in the studio again the second time you've been on the show to talk about your new book um, Dispatches from the Diaspora from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter and in our sort of pre-chat then I was just talking to you about how a lot of the articles in the book and um, I'd actually read before and it was so nice coming back to them within book form as a chronology of your life basically as a journalist so that was a very kind of long-winded introduction partly because i'm so excited to have you in the studio and secondly because i just found out you won the orwell prize as well so i'm really gassed (laughs) (laughs) um, for you so yeah welcome to the show thank you you so much for coming on thank
0: you
1: (laughs) um so i wanted to begin gary and hopefully well no the listeners to the show will definitely be buying the book um check it out published by faber um, but one of the things that I kind of wanted to start this conversation with is really looking at the beginning of the book where you talk about um, your first kind of breakout piece, and I think it's called the Black Knight, yeah. and it's about you following um, Nelson Mandela's um, presidential campaign. And it for me, like that was the first time I'd read that article um, published in nineteen no, ninety-four. So I was two years old when it was published, <laughs> and. It was so exciting to read that article and it felt so deeply personal, political, but also really showed off your skills as a young journalist at the time. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about like what that was like, writing that and working on that piece.
0: <clears throat> w- working on that piece was like a really daunting thrill. I was 24 when I arrived in the country in South Africa to... <clears throat> cover the first democratic elections I was 25 just 25 when I filed that piece I was young and I didn't exactly know what I was doing you know and I was bearing witness I'd been involved in the anti-apartheid movement as a young person I'd pick the embassy with my mum when I was 17 I'd set up an anti-apartheid society at university I'd have my Challenges of the anti apartheid movement over their refusal to engage at all with kind of racism in Britain because they were saying that's something else. So, to be there and to bear witness to this moment, to see the cavalcade come rolling through the dust and the dust kicking up and the cars getting closer and bigger and the dust building and the old women dancing and the young kids dancing and the screaming, and Mandela gets out and climbs on top of a uh you know on the back of a white truck and then goes around the stadium which is why i called him like the black knight the Mm -hmm. black knight on a white horse like was really overwhelming and yeah you kind of had to pinch yourself constantly about like how how am i here How, how did i get here and the whole time i was thinking i have to write a piece i have to like i have to bring this together in a piece and it's it's kind of all too much, and sometimes it would feel like it was not enough, and I'd never written a piece of that length before. I'd never, it was for the G2, G2 front, which was a kind of, I don't know its currency now, but because it's mostly online, but it was the prime spot. You know, right up until the night before I was to file it, when I showed it to the correspondent, And and he he looked at it and he went through and he put, ampersands where I should add things and he put at signs where I should take things out, and he just said, "You you you know too much. You've you've been doing this for too long. You can't see it anymore. We're gonna go out. We're gonna have a drink. You can come back. Work on it all night, and then just send it." Mm. Which is a different way of saying it's not there yet. You know, it's just not there. And um, um, but he was saying it's all in there. You, you know, so um, by the time I sent it, I didn't know what I'd sent. You know, I hadn't slept. And I kind of, and I had seen it too much. And it was the organizing of it all, the kind of, and trying to really tame my excitement so that I could present it to a reader. And um, so I really couldn't see what I'd written. And then I went to Soweto because it was election day. And so I didn't get a sense of the response. This is... Know, there's no mobile phones. There's not. no... South Africa just started with mobile phones, but um, I don't think I had one. Internet, no, uh, internet no um Once again, like infant stages, mm. but not like... Um, it was still, you know, modem, you had to find a, you know, ee, 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 mm. ee, all of that, yeah. <laughs> and I had to find someone in the township that had that connection and... Um, uh, but certainly no social media, and no. and so I finally kind of log on, and I, and it's like um, old-school ticker tape. You're just kind of things just come up one after the other, and they were all kind of congratulations, and they start with colleagues, and it goes up to the kind of editor, and I was just like, oh, thank God. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. thank God. So, because um, it was like you had one job. You had one job, yeah. young man.
1: And I mean it's such a beautifully crafted article it really really is and I think that well the way I read you quote-unquote taming your excitement around Mandela was kind of in your description of Mandela as a politician as a freedom fighter mm. but also as a person it was so nice to read a kind of critical yet loving description of this man and I think that sometimes we, we it, that gets missed um in how we understand who Nelson Mandela was and I think that really comes through in your piece. Oh that's nice. I mean yeah. there is
0: there is the thing that is most often commented about the piece is that I say yeah he wasn't a very good speaker in these um and I didn't realize when I was writing that it wasn't. I wasn't showing off. I mean, I know when I'm showing off. Do yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, um, I just thought, well, you want to know what it's like to be at this rally and the, the, all the excitement that I just described. But then he takes to the podium, and and I explain why. I say like he's he's got some really workmanlike things to do. You know, you got people engaging in a national election for the first time. They got to know, like you know, how to vote and who to vote for, and um, you've got in some areas no levels of literacy mm. um you you've got a campaign which is not everybody knows is gonna win so it's it's really about kind of you know sort of setting things up to maximize their their vote and 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 I say in the piece like he used to be people used to talk about how they would go and watch him speak and cut the white man down to size, you know, and he was a lawyer and so I must In retrospect, what I think is, well, all I was doing was writing what I saw. I wasn't trying to show off. But in retrospect, I think he's been in jail. He's come out of jail. He's negotiated a release that doesn't throw the baby out of the bathwater. He's not repudiating the South African Communist Party or any of that stuff. He is ushering a multi-ethnic, multi-racial country into non-racial democracy Mm He does not have to be a good speaker as well Mm -hmm. that'll do Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. um and i think that particularly when a certain section of white society finds a black leader that they like they have to be everything you know obama has to be everything he can't just be a politician Um,
1: i'm yeah yeah i'm so glad you brought that up gary because i think that is a, a consistency across all of your interventions that i describe as both journalistic and scholarly and this is why i think your writing particularly on black life or lives is so special is because you're always capturing the human like you're always writing in resistance to romanticization and in line with people as people and like how the function of romanticizing can sometimes dilute dilute politics, so actually, mm. in talking very honestly about what you saw in Mandela, we're actually talking very honestly about black life and black people. and I think you do the same when you're talking about um, Martin Luther King with Obama and then talking about um, Black Lives Matter as well. Um, this is what I see as so crucial about your work, and that I think is actually very hard to do, and I can't believe how many years you've been able to do it for. And that kind of brings me on to another point about you your stance hasn't changed that much.
0: No, no, it has Like it's <laughs> <boring>. so good.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not boring. It's very consistent. Like it's very, very consistent. And that is remarkable. Like that's incredible. And I guess my question, um, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but where did that come from?
0: My stance, my politics. Yes. I mean. Yeah. Uh, uh I mean, the last piece, which is about... My, I mean, a lot of it came from my mum. Yes. Um, certainly her blend of internationalism. I mean, she would never have used these words about herself, but internationalism, fem- feminism, mm-hmm. anti-racism, but class politics, totally. And a sense of, like, <clears throat> fairness. Fairness. In uh, in a, in a uh, or decency or something like that. That I remember there was a a kid who went to the special school for I don't know what they would call it now, but at the time it would have been this, there was a special school for slow learners mm. where I grew up, and um, and he was being racist towards us, and then one of us said, "Well, at least we don't go to such and such a school," and my mum was like, "No." no you never do that I mean, like but he's and she said yeah I know so get him on something else but that, you don't get people on that like you don't go that's, live. That's, uh, yeah well it wasn't a Michelle Obama thing because no, no, no. she would be like if people fight you she's like fight back just make sure you win and if you're not gonna win run like yeah, you, yeah. You, you know she wasn't but it was like you um some things are off limits mm. and that's off limits you don't you don't make fun of People's intellectual ability, or if they're fat, or if they're dead. like mm. no, you like you get them on stupid crap that they said, or stupid crap that they did, mm. or or whatever. But like you know, which I remember thinking, oh man, that's like <laughs> 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 you're getting rid of all my best tools in my Yay, toolbox here. Yeah. I'm eight years old. What do you want from me? Um, so there was, so, so there was that, and then was you know growing. <sighs> Growing up in an overwhelmingly white working class town during Thatcherism, you know, I was ten when Thatcher came in. Sort of forced a somewhat critical eye on me, doesn't? You know, everybody's different. I um, I joined a Trotskyist party when I was fifteen. Left when I was sixteen. A Little bit bonkers, but that was a <laughs> that was a really useful lesson in not showing off actually and in not just kind of mouthing off and um you know and the truth is it took a while to kind of put all of that together really but I was I was never in any doubt that race was important. I was never in any doubt that class was important. I was never in any doubt that gender was important. But if I'm honest it took a while to work out how it was important. Um Uh, It took me a while to work out things like sexual orientation and stuff like Mm -hmm. that and not just to be like most kids of my generation and just kind of reflexively homophobic. Mm -hmm. So it definitely didn't kind of fall out of the sky and I definitely wasn't kind of born with it. But then when it came to journalism, there was this challenge of kind of trying to synthesize it in a way that wasn't too laborious. Do you know what I mean? That wasn't like, um, wasn't like, oh, God, here we go. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, yes, I saw this interesting thing, but here come your vegetables. You know, don't forget. There's all sorts. And, you know, obviously this is an anthology of my, stuff that I like, the stuff that I wrote early on that was a bit kind of um, uh, more laborious, more kind mm-hmm. of, um, uh, you could say, trying too hard. But, and I feel fine about that because I feel like, well, that's, yeah, it's a process and you learn. A of you, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I guess one of the things that was really clear to me reading across, yeah, the 90s to to the 20, 20, 2020s in your, in your work is what that must have been like as one of the kind of only prominent black journalists for such a long period of time, and how much pressure that must have been.
0: I mean, there, there was pressure, uh, and there was quite a lot of hostility yeah. as well, and not just from white people. Actually, there was um, there was a pressure from older journalists either to only write about race or to never write about race, which you know I mentioned. Because only a handful got on, and I was right in the cusp. You know, I joined The Guardian as a staff writer in 94, the McPherson Report, it's 99. Mm-hmm. A kind of suspicion of, among black people, of any black person who does get on, a kind of, well they must have sold out, or they must be selling out, and that then the people who do get on, and I'm you do any names here, but kind of there being this challenge of authenticity. So kind of I remember one person saying to someone, oh, Gary Young, how many black how many black people does he know? Mm. And I knew at least one more than he thought I did, because he told it to someone who I know who said, Oh yeah, this was funny. So there was this sense of kind of um um of suspicion and of you know which, I understand actually, and I think that there is there is a challenge for all of us professionally, which is how to understand our challenges structurally. Yes, when actually we are pe- they're happening to us as people, people, but not to take it personally, and so um, and whenever I've spoken to older people who have had. Been through it, which all older black people have been through it. It was the ones who had the politics who I think fared best psychologically. And so I remember doing a documentary on Puffy when he was on trial, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a crazy idea that I would do this documentary. I'd written a book about being, you know, um, traveling through the deep south of America, and I, I was one of you know not many. National black journalists, and um, but I remember being at the Mobo Awards and somebody stopping me and saying, Why did you get to do that documentary on puffy? Like, what do you know about hip hop? Mm-hmm. And it's true that I wasn't, a, I mean, the documentary wasn't about hip hop, it was about race and class, mm-hmm. but like, you know, and I, you know, and I said to him, well, you would have to ask the people who made the documentary because. I didn't fund a documentary, you know, but there is... They can have a go at me. They're not going to have a go at someone who's going to give them a job. So, all of which is to say that it was... Uh, it could be lonely. Um, and, you you know, you find your allies and you pick your allies and you kind of just try and... Try to keep on doing the things that you, you kind of want to do. And trying to insist within your institution. I was I always worked on the premise that a rising tide would lift all bows. And so other people black other black people coming in were not a threat to me. They would help me. Mm. Even when they didn't, that was my view. And mm. and I mean up there I'm referring to black more politically than phenotypically. So I um I did work within the union and, you know, within the Guardian uh, with others, Joseph Harker in particular, to kind of expand that presence. And you could see that really as a self-interest, really, if you want.
1: Mm. Something that I picked up on throughout the articles, particularly when you're talking from the context of being in Britain and then in the context of being in the US, Mm. is how you describe yourself and where you're from. And... One of the reasons why I've always been so taken by your commentary, particularly on race and class, is because I also grew up in a predominantly white, multi class but let's say primarily working class when I was growing up, but now probably more middle-class area in Worcestershire. So like...
0: Outside of I, London. Yeah, outside
1: London. of London. So I always kind of, when, when I read your work, I always kind of had that kind of tinge of like an over, uh, overstanding of... Kind of how whiteness interacts with class, but also how that then, yeah, relates to race and who we are as kind of racialized outsiders within those spaces. But when you talk about, I think it's in one of the articles you're talking about how you're received in the US, mm. you describe yourself as being from London.
0: Yeah, well, Stevenage ain't going to cut it, right? Yes. I'm from Stevenage. But what, what does that mean? You know, so, oh, I mean, I've, you know.
1: I, I'm interested because I've lived mm. in London now like 12 years. How, where I'm socialised and how I un- come to understand myself as a young person, as an adolescent, is within the spaces that, mm. that are very similar to where you grew up. And it's like, when you're talking about the different people that become almost suspicious of what you're doing, I always feel like that's sometimes intersecting with the fact that we're not born and bred in London, yeah, which oh, is completely yeah. understandable as mm. well.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm always just trying to, approximate to what I think the person is going to understand right so right. so I lived in Sudan it's not in the book I don't think but I lived in Sudan for a year I was a uh, uh, when I was 17 as a teacher in a refugee school and um, you've done
1: so much Gary um, your mom's, I'm old. your mum's a legend you know <laughs> an, I know I'm it's your mum your mum she's a legend <laughs> um,
0: and people would say where, you, where are you from and my parents were from Barbados. I was born in England, grew up in England. I would say Jamaica, because mm. they'd heard of Jamaica. Mm. Now, like, that's mental. I, that I've never so been to Jamaica. Different. I'd only been to Barbados once as a four-year-old. And, and um, but, you know, Caribbean wasn't gonna cut it. And and then they'd ask, "What's well, what's Jamaica like?" And it was just like, "Oh God, man, I'm gonna have to come up with something else." Mm-hmm. And I was really determined not to ever say America. Mm-hmm. It was like, eh, yeah. um, so London, you know, was like, um, was the closest. It was the closest I could get to me. And it was like, but here was a funny story. I went to, I think it's funny anyway. I went to Mississippi to do this story. It's not in, the, it's not in the book. I went to, about. A school where everything was segregated within the school. So it was a black principal, white principal, black cheerleaders, white cheerleaders, everything. So I called the black principal. He refuses to speak to me. I called the white principal. He says, um, where in England are you from? And I said, near London. And he says, uh, where near London? And I'm, I'm trying to keep him on the phone. Mm. And uh, and I said, it's a small town. don't think you've heard of it. And he said, try me. And I said, Stevenage. He said, Stevenage! I was in Baldock, and I was oh. like, "That is so mental. That is yeah, crazy." Yeah, yeah. And then he was like, "That's him." He was like, "You got to get over here. You got to." Go. Yeah. So then I turn up at the school, and then he sees me, and it's like the only thing madder than someone from Stevenage turning up in Mississippi mm-hmm. is if that person's black. He was like, "Oh," he like he just had no idea what um, uh, what was coming his way. But yeah, so Stevenage has worked for me, and once again in Mississippi. I was in a church, and you had to hand a little note saying where you were from. And they asked all the visitors to rise, and he said, we have a visitor here from St. Evenage. <laughs> that's like, that sounds nice. St.
1: Evenage, come that's, on. Nice. that's really nice.
0: Yeah, I want to come from there.
1: St. <laughs> Evenage, that's amazing. So just rolling back to the Black Knight article, and mm. that becomes the kind of piece that that very much pro, um, projects you into impl- a secure employment. Mm. And then you begin write your, your very successful writing, filmmaking career. Just for the listeners, what what year do you move to the US?
0: 2000, well, 2003 I moved there for 12 years.
1: You moved there for 12 years. Uh,
0: assuming that I'm going to live there, actually. Yes. But... Um, I get the job in 94 in 96 there is a um there's a fellowship called the Lawrence Stern fellowship mm. which sends one young british journalist to work at the washington post Lawrence Stern was an anglophile um so one young british journalist and I I won it in 96 up until then I wanted to be the moscow correspondent I studied french and russian that's yeah, what I wanted sorry, to do Sorry
1: can we just roll back to this that's one of the reasons you're such a good writer but you're a linguist i that's didn't what, know that i didn't know that about you you're well, a linguist that's well
0: that's what i that's what that's what my first degree was in yeah russian and, and, and french, and, french. Yeah. and um um sorry you
1: wanted to go to moscow sorry i, can't I did I, well yeah.
0: i wanted to i wanted to go to Mo- well there is it because i studied translation so see, some of this comes back to my mum, actually. My mum would have been like, if there's a degree in plumbing, you should do that rather yeah. than the history of art. Cause that's... So my degree's in translation. And what I worked out from my degree is, ah, you're not that interested or necessarily that good at translation, but you do like messing with words. Mm. You know, translation is all about, what, do, what does it mean when we say sip? Do you know what I mean? How's that different to slurp or you know, swig? Or it's all about finding the right words. And um, I really enjoyed that manipulation with language. So there there is a connection. But, um, yeah, I wanted to be the Moscow correspondent. I got this thing to go to America. I fell in love with an American. And then the kind of course of my life changed. And um, then, you know, uh, the woman who'd become my wife, she came uh, to live in England for a bit um, because she was, you know... She, she hadn't traveled much, mm-hmm. and she wanted to travel a bit, so she came living in England for five years and then we, we'd agreed, then we'd go to America. And I'd I'd fully assumed that I'd probably live there. Both of my kids were born there. And then for very, very banal reasons, not interesting particularly at all, we end up coming back. Mm. Um, uh, and frankly, One of the great things about British racism is that it made me ambivalent about the soil. So I left England, I didn't, I missed people, I missed aspects of the culture, but I didn't miss England. Mm, mm. And, you know, so I, I was perfectly happy to live in America for all of its problems, because there are problems here. And I was perfectly happy to come back mm. for all of the problems here because there were problems there. Like, I didn't think moving was going to solve the problem. they would change the problems, but it solve them.
1: And I guess, thank you so much for sharing that kind of the personal trajectory between the UK and US because for me, like, as a black millennial reading this, it it does feel very personal and very kind <laughs> of like... Like, your articles are written as a chronology and description of my life growing up um well i guess i started two
0: two years after you were born
1: yeah so thinking about those the key points that kind of have structured my politics were of course um mandela my dad was also involved in anti-apartheid movement um mcpherson 9 11 new Mm. labor Mm. obama trump black lives matter like and Mm. that's kind of where a lot of your, the arcs of your, some of your mm. key pieces of writing come through. So I think that for listeners, like for 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 anyone really, particularly of my age, like it's so, it, it's a really powerful read because it very much shows like all the just madness that's happened and what we've been through. Um, We had Alana Lenton on the show a couple of weeks ago and she was talking about kind of, how we make kind of generational comparisons around things that have happened. And she was talking about kind of Reaganism and Thatcherism and the birth of neoliberalism. But then she was also talking about the kind of, from the 90s to now, thinking about that the kind of intensity in which things have changed Mm. and what your journalism and now what you're being recognised, rightly so, um, scholarship and sociology of these times really emphasises is just how much happened at once, but how much it all kind of interacts with each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was what I hoped, one of the things that I hoped to achieve by putting them all together, which was not to show some kind of seamless continuum, but to, um, as someone who's been privileged enough to sort of bear witness, Katrina, you know, country, of course or, yes or, or, yeah. you know so in in various guises and to you know the mother of the boy who killed who stabbed another boy or the mother of the boy who was shot dead in Detroit, you know mm-hmm. which whichever was to kind of um have in one place a kind of um a version not exactly of how we got here, but some of the steps that we've taken on the way here.
1: That's definitely um, what the book does, Gary. Honestly, like it's a real... And that's why it's so interesting that it's not been... In te- it- The intention wasn't to curate a chronology. The intention is to put... Well, the intention is an anthology, but when you're writing it, you don't know that that's what it's going to kind of end up like. Mm. So that was really, really powerful to read. One of the things that really stood out to me, one of the articles that really stood out to me was the Martin Luther King article and the the misunderstanding of the Mm. I Have a Dream speech. And it made me think about a lot of different freedom fighters, activists, and how the state repurposes their legacy in order to neutralise them.
0: Yeah, go on, go well, on. I mean, yeah. yeah. I've... Windrush comes to mind. Yeah. As a kind of um, this this point at which um, the establishment decides there's no point in pushing against this thing. So what we have to do is kind of incorporate it and sort of uh, almost smother it in sort of ceremonial um, inanity. And
1: um... I've just walked past the one of the Windrush statues in Waterloo, and like mm. so many of these ways of commemorating, for example, yeah, Windrush have been put forward or designed by um, our elders, people like Black people, people that are part of. Um, Britain, but it doesn't stop it from being something that's quite complicated.
0: Oh yeah, no I, it's not that I would begrudge anybody. No,
1: it's me, but yeah. I have a bit that's sort of me talking there honestly right. about how I feel, because I'm like, that makes me feel uncomfortable that that's yeah. there, but equally I don't know if it's an equally actually maybe it's both at the same time. Sure. I see
0: it, I don't feel uncomfortable that they're there mm-hmm. I feel uncomfortable that I feel like there's a battle on about, first of all, what it means, and secondly, this notion that, that, that you've got your statue, you've got your day, now piss off, Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and that it's cast, particularly Windrush, when the people haven't been recompensated, when there They've are people done, who are, yeah. people have died, that there are still people who were deported, who haven't come back, that like this desire to kick it into the long grass to make it kind of deep history, rather than like a clearly a living thing, oh, God, even I on its see. own terms, um, that's my that's my problem in it. And so when I see the statues, I I I know what you mean. You think oh that they're trying to buy us off, mm. and I'm not a great fan of statues anyway. <laughs> but these aren't statues of named people. Generally, they are they are symbolic. So you know that's not part of my anti-statue jihad that's just mm. um, you know I get that but the yeah just the just and so the same thing happens with Martin Luther King with his kind of that his whole career is reduced to a speech and the whole speech is reduced to a line um, uh, content of the character not the colour of their skin and that's used to you know Deny affirmative action and this and that. Nobody talks about the promissory note that came back uh, with insufficient funds. Like America owes us and it is not paid us back. Nobody talks about the anti-Vietnam um, stance. There, not nobody. I mm. mean the, yeah, the people who yeah, yeah. extol him. Um, you know speeches where he said, you know, who owns the oil, who owns the iron, or why. Do we have water bills in a world? That, in a world that's uh, three quarters water? Like what like he starts questioning capitalism, you know, this the way that they praise the peaceful man that ultimately gets shot. There are so many ways in which he is um traduced, really. Which is true for nearly all of the civil rights. I mean you know, Rosa Parks and I mean they're nearly all horribly deliberately kind of misremembered <clears throat> but i think that there is and this comes back to Windrush and all a range of things that are still going on and will it will forever be last that we're in a contest we're you know we're in a chat these things are up for grabs about the history of these things it isn't just about the past it's about the present and how we understand the present and how we got there here. And if we understand, there's a way of understanding Windrush as, well, isn't this lovely? This shows the genius of Britain. And there's a way of understanding Windrush as the symbolic beginning of a fight that's not over. And it's up for us in that contest to keep the ideas going. Mm -hmm.
1: And how do you feel about that contest right now in this moment, July, twenty twenty
0: three? You know, it goes it goes backwards and forwards, and and um, I feel that there's a range of things. If you'd ask me in my childhood, would the England football team be making an anti-racist statement before each game? Mm. I would have thought, well, you know, obviously not. If you know, if when I think of the, a range of things that are understood now, two-thirds of people um, have heard the term systemic racism or institutional racism. When McPherson came out, that was like a minority sport. That was like a niche, Mm -hmm. you know. Only half of people could really say what it means. Um, That you would have, you know, a Muslim mayor of London sacking the Head of the Met for her inability to challenge racism. Eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So none of them are perfect and none of them are all problematic. But, like, um, so in a range of ways, this isn't quite what you asked, but we're not where we were. We're not where we need to be. And in some areas, like, I would never have imagined, no one would ever imagine anyone seriously suggesting sending asylum seekers to Rwanda, there are a range of ways in which we've gone backwards. But the, all the levels of exclusion and um, off-rolling and all of that kind of stuff in, in school. So, you know, the idea of a, the police strip-searching girl in school, I don't think that would have been, you know, plausible 30 years ago four years ago. So, I think that... Um, I think that there are mixed results for that contest. Um, And broadly speaking, I feel that politically, progressives, anti-racists, not the same thing, but kind of, I think we're clearing quite a lot of political ground, but we have a proven inability to build on it structurally. I think that we. Uh, I think Black Lives Matter speaks to this in a way. I think that people think differently, broadly speaking, think differently and better uh, when it comes to our racial discourse. Um, and I think we're doing worse. You yeah. know what I mean? I think that, uh, yeah. and that there's a contradiction there clearly. Um, because if you look at where the political gains, not just electoral, but political gains, it's, it's um, you know, Swella Breverman, Pretty Patel, all of those people. But also, kind of, if you look at, kind of, where Labour is, if you can't even, can't even condemn Rwanda as an immoral policy, then, you know, we are you know, we're not where we need to be, obviously. So we, f- we haven't found a way to make our critical interventions count in a durable way, I think.
1: Yeah. I think last time we spoke, it was just after um, the resurgence, of the Black Lives Matter movement. And <clears throat> we were starting to see, I think it was in 2021 when we last spoke, and we were starting to see a kind of rollback mm. of some of the kind of more emancipatory discourse when it comes to um, black lives and um, anti racism in a kind of local and global context. And I know you talk about this in one of your articles about the pollination and how discourse on race in the US is important for discourse on race when it comes to Britain as well. And I wondered how you feel that pollination I mean, you've answered quite a lot of this question now in your earlier point, but how you feel that pollination, if if that pollination is able to endure?
0: I feel that we're still seeing the fruits of it. Okay. I I do. And just in a few interactions that I've had, because it's really it's very difficult to track, Mm. so it inevitably becomes somewhat anecdotal, but that doesn't make it meaningless. No, definitely not. We think of Cottonopolis, the Guardian's research into its history and how it was funded by slave money. That couldn't have happened without Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And that then leads to um, bursaries at black colleges in America, to uh, a whole program of restorative justice that is now emerging from there. I'm not saying it's all perfect, Mm. but like this is all, it's all playing out. I'm fielding calls from educational establishments who want to talk about kind of challenging, but education, I mean like county county level, wanting to kind of uh, challenge issues of race, in their institutions, but I'm also dealing with university bodies who are saying this was set up after Black Lives Matter and it's not really working. Like the people who are yeah, being yeah, asked yeah. to do it yeah. saying it's not really working, we've, we've had enough, there's no, th- there's no financial support for it, mm-hmm. there's no support in the institution, it's just lip service. So I think th- th- the results are quite mixed, but that there are results. And even those results where you get knocked back, they are still, no energy is ever lost. So it would be ridiculous to claim that in some way it's a step forward if you've been knocked back. But it means that the the question has been asked and a demand has been made. And where the demand has not been met, that is now something that we can refer to as you know as we pursue as people pursue what what whatever's next and if if we just think about how this plays out historically brown versus board of education is what 1954 um Rosa Parks is 55 the sittings in Greensboro North Carolina I think in 1960 Birmingham is 63 like this is a kind of eight, nine, Mm -hmm. ten year, you know, stretch. Um, um, I I think similarly, you know, Macpherson is 99. Um, I think significant gains are made and strides are made in Britain in the three or four years. Well, certainly in the two or three years after that, and then there's a retrenchment because of uh, 9/11 and uh, uh Islamophobia and you know and but it it doesn't go away so i think i think we're still in the middle of it
1: yeah i think you're right as well and i think i mean if i'd said to you a few years ago that affirmative action would be being rolled back like mm. would you have believed that
0: i would have yeah you would yeah <laughs> I would.
1: to be honest like you're the when it comes to talking about <clears throat> Both US and UK politics when it comes to the rolling back of anti-racist policy. Mm. You're probably the person that's come on the show and that I've listened to that's been very kind of consistent but honest about the realities. I think you were the first person that I had read that predicted the election of Donald Trump. Did you you pick...
0: I can't remember b- b- Well, I, I, I try not to make predictions, but no, my guess but would be were... that I would have said it's possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could yeah. Win, you know Yeah. And um And Brexit um,
1: as well.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I think that all of these there is a there is a mindset that, you know, I, I you know, I woke up in one country and I went to bed in one country and I woke up in another and it's like no you, no, didn't. you didn't. You woke up in a racist, xenophobic country and uh, that's when you went to bed and then you woke up, there was proof of it in a way that you could see and it mattered to you. That's yeah. what kind of... In the book, there is a kind of interesting challenge that I have, which is taking stuff out. And one of the things that I took out was um, a piece that I did, a very long piece about affirmative action in 2000, which is the last time it came to Supreme Court. And um, I went to Ann Arbor in Michigan, where you know where it had been an issue. Well, that was that was the test case. It was Jennifer Gratz, um, and um, yeah, and you know they showed me this form, and you know, and you you added some points. I think it was I can't remember how many points if you were African American. They were or all, all, all Hispanic or Native Islander or whatever, but then there were also points that you added if you were from the upper Peninsula of Michigan. Nobody was moaning about that. Mm-hmm. But worse, if your mum or your dad went there, then there were a bunch of points you added, more points. And um, one of the petitioners for um, in that particular Supreme Court case had got points because they were legacy and they they weren't complaining about that. But um, um, that was one of the pieces that, uh, you know, just didn't quite make it. And I was most, when this happened, I was like, oh, maybe I should have put that in. But then I thought, most of the pieces that are in there are around things that will come around again, so. Yeah.
1: And I guess on that note, like, one of the things, or or for me, as a black academic or someone that tries to write and contribute to these things through broadcasting or writing, Um, I've already said, like I'm definitely one of the people that very much looks up to you. Um, One thing that you kind of see throughout some of the articles and also some interviews that you've done over the years is the challenge of speaking truth to power when that power is always operating in spheres of privilege um, but also bad faith. And I think that listening to you and reading your work has, has so often given me the kind of tools to confront that, but that doesn't necessarily take away from the kind of psychological, emotional toll of kind of, I mean, your a really great phrase that you did on your um, uh, podcast about um, the museums, the British mm. museums, is that like in the Ben in Bronze and... It's like we're constantly having this bad faith argument with people that don't want to actually tell stories about... Tell tell the truth about Britain and its history while saying that it's us that doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Like, put simply, we want more history. You don't want us to have more history. Mm. And I think that so much of your work kind of speaks to that. And I guess my question is, as one of the people that wants to contribute in similarly, similar ways to you have... How do, we, how do we kind of block out the noise? Like, what, what, do, we, what do we do when we're producing this work and we're contrib- contributing in this way when there's so many bad faith actors around us? And I'm, I'll put it in the episode notes. There's an interview you did more recently about this book with The Guardian and you talk about how you kind of like, you, not lost your temper, but you got frustrated with um, a certain newspaper um who found out that you were the chair on oh, yeah. one of the r- removals of the pil- pillar
0: It was the fourth plinth. The in fourth plinth. Trafalgar Square. Yeah, so
1: yeah. the removal of kind of colonizing slave owners from mm. our kind of yeah <laughs> Im- imagine <laughs> and like you spoke about an article that you wrote about like um your dis- dislike for the for the establishment basically and I guess like that work is so important cuz kind of engaging in that rage does something but also this, we're constantly up against those things. Does it does that make sense? It does, I mean, it
0: does. It, it's and it's difficult, isn't it? It's yeah. um you know that Tony Morrison quote about the kind of the point of racism is distraction. And um and you know, they send you off to prove you've got a history, you've got a language, you've got this, you've got that. And um it's hard. I've I've one of the things I um have learned not to do, I didn't have to learn it that hard be- just because I'm older, but is not to be overly distracted by social media. So yes. that kind of, um, this is very hard sometimes, but n- not to go into my mentions.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: or, you know, even when people are kind of lying about me or misrepresenting me, well, I just think it's,
1: Noise.
0: It, yeah, it's noise, and um, I think that kind of um, ultimately, like, you didn't get here by accident, right? You got a podcast that does very well, mm-hmm. and that kind of engages large numbers of people and in interesting. Nobody gave that to you. You made that happen. So the the issue can't be that you are kind of, you know, that you don't have identifiable goals. So then you have to just remember what those goals are. Yeah, And kind of, powerful. you know, even kind of write it down somewhere and be like, you know, uh, and which does involve, I think there is, there is something to, and of course we go in and out of this because we're people, but the greater you can kind of, the greater your propensity to kind of understand your your value to yourself, not to the outside world, but to yourself, the easier it is to say, "I I don't need to talk to you.
1: Yeah,
0: I don't need to answer that. I don't care that you are Professor Ladi da or that you have the like or O B this or M B like you are you are not what's important to me, and you, you, that can only come from wells." a well of self-belief. My personal view is that for me, that self-belief does reside to a large extent in my politics. That's what stops it for me. I can't speak about the experience of other people about me, but for me, it's what stops it from being a kind of cockiness, but instead being like, well, I'm not doing that right now. Like, you do that if that's what you want to do. And there's some, um, yeah, I think that there is, well, (laughs) I would say that the other very important thing for me is is philosophical, this, somewhat, is that I do not control how I'm understood. So I'm not going to worry about how I'm understood because I don't control that. All I can control is what I do.
1: I'm gonna have to write that down. That's a <laughs> and, great one. And if I control what one. I do,
0: then I can answer for what I do. um And that way, I don't have that monkey on my back the mm. whole time. Like, how will this be understood? You know, I get so often with younger, particularly black journalists, and I do understand the anxiety. So, it's a rational anxiety. I don't want to be seen as just a black writer. I don't want to be understood as. And I just think, yeah, but then you're handing all the power to somebody else, usually a person unknown to you know. It's all in a passive voice to be understood as. Just understand yourself. If you can just use that energy to just understand yourself or try and understand yourself, then um, you you, people people are going to do what they're going to do, and they're going to understand you or misunderstand you, however they're going to. And. I do feel like you live longer <laughs> yeah. if you don't. And it's, of course it's not that I don't worry what people think of me. That It's not that exactly. but Or I don't care what people think of me. But um, I care what people I know think of me. I don't care what people I don't know think of me. I care what people that I love and respect think of me. But I don't care what Johnny bollocks 7304 on the internet thinks of me so you know I um I feel that that is is quite important and that's one thing that I have had from quite an early from starting out that
1: sense of self you can see it in your writing um
0: uh just kind of like and I, I, to be honest, my mum died when I was 44, when she was 44, when I was 19. And to be honest, I think that also had a lot to do with that, in terms of like just thinking, okay, so the, pretty much the worst thing that can happen to me has happened. Yes. <laughs> uh, Forseeably, I didn't have kids then, obviously. So, you know, my mum died very suddenly. Yes. So it's like, well, you can go anytime. Your life is short and precarious. So then you have to do what you're going to do. You have to, you know... And there's a great line from John Carlos, one of the men who raised his fist in the 68 Olympics, that is in the book, where he says, everybody's born, everybody dies. What matters is what you do in the middle. And if you... I can't remember quite how he phrased it, but it, but it's basically if you've done what it takes to kind of shift the planet at all. I'm not saying that I've done that, but that was his, that was his understanding of his act of raising his fist in the sixty-eight Olympics, and um, you know that had, you know there's something there's something to that. We're not here very long. Uh, and, um, you know, I don't want to get all Dalai Lama about it, but, you know, so um, you've got to do what you got to do. And if you spend all that time worrying about what other people think of you, you'll never get... That's time when you could be thinking about what you think of yourself.
1: Gary, that was such brilliant, thoughtful, beautiful advice. Professor Gary Young, everyone. Thank you so much for thank coming you. on the show. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or
0: Instagram.